The views, information, and opinions expressed in this podcast are solely those of the speakers and do not represent Holding Short Media nor any organization that the speakers have been, currently are, or will be affiliated with. Welcome to the Holding Short Podcast. I'm your host, Laura Matheson. Today we are joined by Carl Loken. Carl Loken began his aviation career in 2007 with Air Georgian, Air Canada Express, as an inventory controller in supply chain to support the Beach 1900D aircraft, concurrently training under Centennial College's Parts Technician Apprenticeship Red Seal Trade Certification Program. In 2013, he joined Sky Regional Airlines, Air Canada Express, as the lead materials coordinator for stores and material control specifically at Toronto Pearson for the Embraer 175 fleet transition from Air Canada Mainline to Air Canada Express. In 2014, age 25, Carl was presented with an opportunity to join Emirates Airlines to help develop the materials management department for its new $120 million Emirates Engine Maintenance Centre, EEMC, which was the largest engine maintenance repair organization in the Middle East, supporting the power plant repair and overhaul for the GE90 115B, and GP7200 engines for the Boeing 777-200LR and 300ER, and the Airbus A380, respectively. He also leveraged the support of Emirates to complete a master's degree in aviation management while also working full-time. After working for close to four years for Emirates, Carl in 2018 returned home to Toronto as the store's duty manager for Air Canada's Pearson Hub. At the Pearson International Airport, he managed the project development and transition of the logistics and supply chain footprint within the largest freestanding commercial aircraft hangar in Canada, both at a cost of $90 million. In 2020, his role at Air Canada expanded to include serving as regional manager, SCM operations at Pearson, and then further expanded once more to being promoted to general manager, logistics and warehousing, and was responsible for Air Canada's logistics department across the various bases system-wide. Upon Carl's return to Canada, he continued working towards his commercial pilot's license and Group 1 multi-IFR ratings, he is now currently flying as a first officer on the Dash 8 100 and 300 for Voyager Airways. Carl is a holder of an MBA in aviation management, an accredited member of the Royal Aeronautical Society, and an accredited member of the Chartered Institute of Logistics and Transport. He has been a member of the Urban Pilots Network since 2007 and a member of the Organization of Black Aviation Professionals since 2017. I truly could not be more excited to have him today. Welcome to the Carl Loken. Thank you, Laura, for having me. I have to say we're very excited you have been on our list of guests for actually, I think, longer than you may know. Um, but yeah, we, we feel so lucky to have the Carl Loken finally grace our episodes. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> so as someone that has had like truly an incredible career in aviation so far, we'll jump right on in. How did you get your start in aviation? Wow. Um, that, is a, that is a very full question. Um, my, my start in aviation honestly started um, back in... Oh my goodness, back in 2006, 2007. Um, actually, my apologies, before then, uh, when I was about 14 or 15 years old, uh, when I was in high school, um, I started working for a company called um, Crossroads Courier. Um, Crossroads Courier was a career company that worked within the airport. Um, this is back when Pearson International Airport had the old Terminal 1 building. So we're talking about the 
the the the round terminal bone building, not the hammerhead building that you see today. Um, uh, they were primarily based out of there, um, and uh, what their job, what my job was, was um, to essentially pick up delayed baggage. Um, now, how before I even go further into that, how I even got that um, job itself was I was hooked up with um, somebody who also worked there, which was a friend of my mother. Um, and they always knew I liked airplanes, um, but I just kind of didn't really know how to kind of get into working with airplanes, just being around the environment. Um, and they said, hey, you know, we got a little job throughout the summer, um, summer holidays and the winter peaks um, that you could work to, to kind of just help around um, and move bags and stuff. So I was I was excited. I was super excited as, you know, as a, as a young guy in, in, in high school and you know, usually, you know, people during the summers and the winters want to enjoy time with, you know, family or friends or go have fun. I wanted to work. So I took up on that opportunity um, to take up that job. And essentially, like I had mentioned before, the job was to handle delayed baggage. So anytime um, an airline would have, um, you know, cancellations or delays or bump bags or whatever the case may be, or misconnects. Um, once they finally reached their destination, which happened to be Toronto, um, what our responsibility was was to pick it up from the baggage offices, bring it to the distribution center, and then we'd actually coordinate with the customer and then actually have the drivers deliver it to the customer. So my particular job was being at the airport in the terminal, picking up those bags and putting them into truck. Very simple job, but for me it was it was everything, um, especially kind of just being around the airport environment and you're you're there in the peak um, peak times of the year, both in summer and winter. So you're seeing a lot of hustle and bustle, a lot of people going, a lot of people coming, a lot of airplanes. Uh, at that time, uh, like I mentioned, um, it was in the old Terminal One. Uh, we actually did Terminal One, Two, and Three, so I saw everything. Um, so it was really really cool to see. But also during that time, that's when Pearson was also planning on demolishing the old Terminal One and building the new Terminal One that we have today, which is the Hammerhead. So it was a little bit of a transition phase. They were also knocking down Terminal Two at the same time. Um, so I, I would that was a you know pretty critical part for me to kind of see how the airport even did its transition as well during the during the deconstruction and the construction of the new terminal building. Um, so I did that uh, seasonally for about two years, um, but I wanted more, uh, obviously, as I got older and I wanted to do other things, and. Um, my second job in aviation was actually at a company called Air Georgian. Unfortunately, they don't exist anymore uh, at this current at this current moment. Uh, they they changed the name, um, uh, but Air Georgian at the time uh, was operating as an express carrier for Air Canada. Um, they operated Beach 1900Ds, um, but they also did some charter charter work. Um, how I got that job was just by sheer fluke. Um, uh, I was in uh, the Toronto uh, store called Threshold Aviation right by the airport. I'm sure it's very popular. A lot of people know it. It's a store that I still visit to today. And um, one of the guys who worked there at the time um, would always see me. And I kind of just trying to, you know, I asked him, hey, what, is, what does he do outside of work, uh, working at Threshold? And he would say, yeah, I work at Air Georgia. And I said, what do you do? And he says, oh, I work in logistics. I work in stores. And I said, well, what is that? And he goes, well, you know, handling your craft parts, looking after this warehouse. I said, oh, that sounds pretty cool. And he goes, well, actually, we're looking for somebody. Um, 
that uh, that to fill a spot and would you would you want a job there i said oh my god yeah of course and uh, he goes okay send me your resume and i'll you know you know refer you to the manager um when i got home sent in my resume um and i think within a few matter of two or three days i got a call saying hey um you know do you want to come in for an interview so i came in for the interview um everything went went well and then i think two weeks later i was starting at air georgian so it was an interesting thing because i had no real recollection about logistics i didn't really know too much about technical specs of aircraft um but it was that's where i really got my feet wet yeah i mean it just sort of goes to show how like twisty turning aviation can be and so much of it just comes down to being in the right place at the right time at the same time that's also where, where i really started to really define what i wanted to do in my life um and i decided i want to fly too as well um and i started picking away at my hours started my flight training unfortunately it just wasn't uh, i wasn't in the position where i had enough money to do so so it was very on and off and i'll get back to the part of the story but i was always on and off in flight training um due to money i didn't have a car at the time um so it was very difficult to to do the flight training full time I think a lot of people really run into that issue because flight training can just be so off the charts expensive. And I know we're going to touch on your flight training a little bit later. So for now, I guess we can just focus on what you were doing with Air Georgian. Um, like I mentioned, I worked at Air Georgian for about five and a half years. Um, you know, Air Georgian was a great company. Uh, GGN, uh, as they call it, um, was it was an amazing company in terms of its tightening this with its with its workers and its family um it was really really nice to see because everybody treated you know everybody like family you know everybody knew everybody um and you know it was fun it was it was fun working there um i got to know the beach 1900 quite a bit um because we used to do all the line maintenance there we used to do the heavy maintenance there as well um i believe they also had a base in halifax and calgary as well from uh, from what I remember, um, like I said, worked there for five and a half years. Then another opportunity came my way, also in logistics, um, Sky Regional Airlines. Um, now, the unique thing about Sky Regional Airlines at the time um, was they were already operating, but they were operating out of the Island Airport um, to Montreal uh, on using the Q four hundred. So it was just that daily service, or I'd say I'd say every few hours. Um, between Toronto Island Airport and Montreal, but Air Canada wanted to expand the operation with Sky Regional to um, give more capacity uh, for the express carriers. And obviously, this is used to make um, the regional routes a little bit more efficient um, through a different cost structure. Um, so Air Canada decided that the Embraer 175s would go to Sky Regional, and that's where I came in. Um, and um, they were looking for people to work in the logistics department to obviously set up the logistics department to support the Embraer operation out of Pearson and whatnot. And I jumped on the opportunity um, and I walked in um, when I first got hired. There was nothing. There was no offices. The offices were not even barely built. Um, there was nothing. So it was actually a really cool experience to work there because we basically kind of made our own home to some degree 
Mm -hmm. uh, we moved into an empty hangar and we just set up everything from scratch. I know one of our other guests, uh, Piyush Gandhi, had talked about being in a startup environment, particularly in an aviation context. And in his case, he was coming in to be the chief pilot reporter. Um, but I don't think I understood just how bare bones it can all be really when starting. I mean, we know that it can be quite uh, sort of left to your own devices and having to figure things out and literally building the building as you're also trying to build the organization. But yeah, it can be just really quite something initially starting out. It was a lot of work, a ton of work, but it was fun because it was the first airplane all the way to initially 15. Um, I think after I left, they bumped it up to 25 airplanes. Uh, but it was really cool to see the transition and to see people getting hired and training going on. And it was just a new birth of life. Um, and again, same thing like Air George and Sky Regional was a really, really good place to work. Very, very close-knitted family of people who work there. Um, you know, everybody knew everybody. It was it was fun. And it was cool, too, because it was a new jet uh, to Sky Regional, of course, right? The Embraer. Um, it, it was a, it's, a, it's a nice airplane, for sure. Uh, had its quirks, for sure. Uh, you have to really understand uh, that airplane quite well to really know the ins and outs because it has its quirks. But every airplane has its quirks, too, as well. So it was a new endeavor for us. But um, after a while, the company really, really got familiar and accustomed to the Embraer, and it and it was a beautiful airplane uh, to work with. Um, you know, for the operation, it was it was it was really good. Now I know we've talked before about your overall aviation journey, and one of the things that's so consistent is that you speak so highly of the organizations you've worked for, uh, Sky Regional being no exception. But what stands out to me with them is just how brief your tenure really was with them. I was only there for a year and a half, um, and I wanted even more. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, and uh, like I'd mentioned um, before with the flight training, um, it was still something that was always in the back of my mind, but I couldn't quite finish it, only because of the fact that um, it's just due to finances. It was very expensive, um, but I had to find a way to still do it. But I had to keep my my current career in parallel and then an opportunity came up actually not even in canada um overseas in dubai uh with a company called emirates uh, a lot of people know emirates airlines through probably through sports teams or whatever you see them on ads all the time um with sports and obviously emirates is iconic a380 with is the largest commercial passenger jet in the world and it's got the in-flight showers and flight bar spa you name it uh, people know Emirates from that and that was always a company that I really 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 wanted to work for um, it was always always ingrained in the back of my brain that I, at some point in my life I need to work for them mm -hmm. and um, I had actually applied to Emirates probably about 11 times well yeah 11 times and on the 12th time I got I got a uh, a call and say we want to do an interview with you and just the whole interview process itself is is, is a story in itself um but long story short i got the job with emirates um and uh in i believe in august 2014 i found myself moving to dubai um 26 years old at the time you know first time moving out of my my from my house first time living on my own first time a lot of firsts, moving to a different country, 
different climate, different temperature, different um, culture, everything was different. Um, but it was a new and exciting endeavor for me. Um, mm -hmm. It allowed me to really find myself as an individual um, and explore boundaries. I know when we think of aviation, we often use the idea of like drinking out of a fire hose. It could just be way too much all at once. And you're just trying to figure yourself out and sort of just basically contextualize yourself within everything else that's happening around you. Uh, I think aviators are particularly adept at finding ourselves in these situations where everything is new. It's it sort of just exactly your case. So it must have been nice to at least have a new adventure and know that you were taking on a new role and being so young. I mean, what were you like 25? So an incredible opportunity, everything's new, but what exactly was your role with Emirates? What I was actually hired there to do was to work for a facility called the Emirates Engine Maintenance Center. And essentially what that is, um, that was a facility that was newly built. In fact, it was still a construction site when I started there. Um, and the building was designed, or the facility was designed to um, do perform heavy maintenance and overhaul on GE90 and GP7200 engines. Um, to kind of explain to the listeners what that is, um, those engines are the GE90-115B1L engine goes on the 777-200LR and the 300ER. And the GP7200 is an engine that goes on the 8380, or one of the engines that goes on the 83. There's two types, um, and that's one of the types. That facility was literally brand new. It was literally a construction site when I walked in. Um, so, and again, another endeavor of, you know, facilities and being able to set up um, uh, a different endeavor for a new company or not a new company, but for a new venture. Um, and it was, it was interesting because that was the first time that Emirates was also doing it too. So there's a lot that they learned about setting up a facility, an MRO, and an MRO stands for maintenance repair organization to specify to actually overhaul aircraft engines. Um, and it's interesting because once you actually go into the realm of different sides of the businesses in aviation, you really start to gain appreciation on how deep it actually goes. Um, now, back to my original story of what I was doing at Emirates, uh, I was responsible for material planning and purchasing for aircraft parts and also vendor management. Um, so essentially what, what would happen is an engine would come into the facility. They would do an inspection. That's gate one. Gate one, there's, there's four different gates uh, throughout the entire process, life cycle of an engine being repaired. Gate one is basically induction and inspection. Um, they'll inspect the, the engine to see, you know, what type of work has to be done to it. What's the work scope? Um, how many hours has the engine flown? How many cycles has the engine flown? Um, they'll do a borescope. They'll, they'll assess it. They'll go and do a work scope meeting and make sure that is the work scope um, accurate to the induction of for which the engine was brought down for. If there's any additional work, they'll do a work scope revision and say, okay, well, we found extra damage in, you know, in certain parts of the engine. Okay, this engine now might need, instead of a quick turn um, work, it might need an overhaul. These types of things. It would be more of an assessment. Um, gate two would be my gate. I was responsible for gate two. And essentially gate two was making sure that the parts um, after the work scope uh, for the engine was actually completed, that the parts would actually go out on time to the vendors or go through the repair shops. Um, 
be sent out within a certain TAT. TAT stands for turnaround time. Uh, making sure that those parts are sent out and they're brought back within that certain turnaround time to meet the engine build. Because, you know, for every engine that's down, that's one engine that's flying on an airplane. Now, you got to remember, Emirates is an airline that has the world's largest A380 fleet and the world's largest 777 fleet. So they have spares, but spares are not endless. So we have to make sure that the uh, engines are being returned to service back in time to be reinstalled in the airplanes. So every delay in the gate process will affect the release to service uh, for an engine back into flying condition. Um, but anyways, back to gate two, um, I was responsible to make sure that these parts were back in time for the engine build. Um, and then gate three is the assembly, um, making sure we make sure or the team makes sure um, that the engines are built, obviously to spec, um, making sure that everything is is where it should be uh, mechanically. Um, and, uh, and, and, you know, uh, and like I said before, the engine world is just a different world, um, especially in aircraft maintenance. Uh, it's something that I didn't appreciate until you actually watch them disassemble an engine and assemble an engine. Um, it's amazing of how complex an engine it is actually is. It's, in fact, I think it's probably more complex than the airplane itself. The airplane is, is divided into two, ent two entities, the airframe and the engine and the power plant. And the power plant for sure is the most complex in my opinion. After you know being in the shop and, and seeing how every stage of the process is broken down and the parts are broken down and the parts are inspected literally to microns. Um, that's how, that's the tolerance that these parts are inspected to microns. It, microns is something that uh, is basically a measurement that you can't even see to the human eye. It's very, very, very tight uh, tolerances. So it's something I really appreciated, and especially the mechanics and the engineers in the reassembly um, that I would appreciate in terms of the work that they would do because it, it's really precision work. But anyways, that's gate three assembly, and gate four is release to service and te testing and release to service. Um, so what we had, we actually had an engine test facility across the street, and that facility was literally designed to literally run these big engines up to full power. And a lot of people probably don't appreciate when they're on, you know, maybe on the triple seven, and you know the aircraft engine spools up to full power, and you're and you feel it, you know, you're moving, you know, four hundred thousand pounds um, easily, and those engines do it effortlessly a lot of people don't realize that those engines have you know over 115,000 pounds of thrust it's a lot of a lot of power and that facility was designed to make sure that those engines were running to spec you know i, I definitely agree that sort of once once you just get down to it and you can actually see how impressive and arguably beautiful engines can be um to think of all the engineering that goes into them and all the time it's it's, it's just sort of I have no word for it other than just impressive. Um, you know how your facility was testing to ensure that engines are running to spec, but what exactly would that testing process look like? Um, so we would bring the engine into the facility. Um, they'll make sure it's all hooked up properly. They'll run it to full power um, in different stages. They're, tech, they're checking oil temperature, oil pressure, fuel pressure, um, vibrations, all types of parameters. And the tests are about three hours very in-depth tests. They're monitoring all parameters. 
um, to make sure that the engine is fit for service. Um, obviously, tons of fuel is burnt <laughs> when you're doing a three-hour test, but that's the cost of safety. Um, that's what you have to do. Um, and uh, after the engine is certified and the, the guys in the test cell are happy, um, then the engine's put on the truck and it's brought to the facility to be reinstalled in an actual airplane. And that's the actual process of, of part of the process of what I did um, over at Emirates. Um, and it was really, really, really rewarding. Um, like I said, something that I didn't appreciate until I actually started working there. Um, and yeah, it, it's, it's, it was really, really good experience working there. In addition to just having like a full-time life and experience with your work and actual job at Emirates, you also had the opportunity to pursue an MBA in aviation management through Emirates, Emirates Aviation University. How did you have this opportunity and what was it like to do this course? That's a very good question, Laura. Um, so Emirates, uh, the nice thing about Emirates is being an airline in the Middle East, they, they're pretty self-sufficient in many ways, not just through um, through the airline itself and having you know the, the ground division or the, the aviation operations for airport operations basically is the, the NATA division of, uh, of the Emirates group. Um, but they like to branch out in many different areas, um, more and more areas than you would think. Um, and one area that they branched out in, in was um, Emirates Aviation University. Um, they had opened up a university in Dubai um, to teach about aviation programs, and it was uh, actually um, in joint venture with Coventry University of the United Kingdom. So the nice thing about it is, is they were encouraging employees to take a lot of these programs, bachelor's degrees, master's degrees, and whatnot. And um, I already had my, you know, um, had a bachelor's previously. Um, so I said, you know what? why not take the opportunity to take it to the next level and do my master's? Mm -hmm. um, and when I saw the program that was being offered in aviation management, I said, well, what, what better time to do it while I'm, you know, working. It's not really, not like I'm really doing much other than working. So let's, you know, let's try and kick it up a notch with my education. So I decided to take um, uh, my master's in aviation management. Um, at Emirates Aviation University. I did it um, in conjunction with working full-time. Uh, so basically that took approximately approximately three years to complete while I was working full-time. So um, amazing program. Um, it's dual dual accredited, accredited program, uh, both in the UAE and the United Kingdom. Uh, so I get dual accreditation for that program. So it was, uh, it was a real enjoyment um, to, to basically apply what I know in the real world and take the theory part of what you learn through school and kind of combine the two and use it towards real life. What was one of the biggest revelations you had about sort of aviation management, both theory and practical while taking that course? What I found was, I think it's, it's a lot of it is based on theory to some degree. And, and I'd say more so half of the course, because some of the courses were, were, were based on theory. Um, and the revelation that I had is basically is like, well, how do you apply that to real real life, right? You know, they, they'll teach you uh, theoretical things, they'll teach you practical things, but the theoretical aspect of the course is like, well, where would you apply it to, right? And that's just gonna come through experience. That's gonna come through just actually doing the job and then be like, oh yeah, I forgot, this is what I learned 
in the course, this is where I would apply it to, right? So that was more of a re revelation for me. Is in, and in terms of also how diverse it is, you know, you have so many different areas. You have airport management. You have airline operations. You have finance. You have so many different areas in the course that um, is spread out. And and you know, when you've done the job physically before taking that course, you can kind of link things together. And vice versa, there's some certain people that may not have the real life experience and they might have the education um, first before the real life experience. And then, you know, it's now kind of reversing the, the logic in terms of, well, how do you combine that to apply what you've learned to real life? Um, my personal opinion, I believe that it, it'd be almost better that you're out in the real world, you're building your experience through the ranks, um, through a bachelor's and then to eventually do a master's. Master's is kind of like the icing on top of the cake mm -hmm. um, for everything. Um, that really should solidify everything that you've learned through, you know, through your bachelor's and then, you know, your real life experience to kind of combine the two and say, okay, this is the creme brulee of creme brulee um, for your education. You know, having that opportunity it, it would have been incredible right what a great way to sort of combine the theoretical and the practical while also finding yourself in a way and a new avenue to grow personally and professionally um, I know you loved your role with Emirates and you you still speak about it so fondly but I also know that you're a lifelong learner and that there was more for you to come and you had bigger goals that you were going to continue chasing beyond that my shining light of flying never ended <laughs> um, you know it was something that was always ingrained in my brain that I still had to accomplish, still something I had to achieve, still something I wanted to do. You know, when I was working for Emirates, I was literally on the top of my game. Um, you know, it was it was tough even getting into the company, never mind leaving. Um, and I said to myself, well, actually, I'll go back to part of the story that I didn't uh, I didn't bring up. Um, Emirates Airlines at the time, they had a um, something called an EFTA, Emirates Flight Training Academy. It was a brand new flight school that was being built in Dubai uh, for their own pilots because they were realizing that they're having pilot shortages and they wanted to build their own academy. Um, and at the time, I really wanted to potentially join the academy considering I was already in the company. Um, but there were some delays with opening the facility and whatnot and wasn't sure if they were going to be able to sponsor me for the program. Um, but they said that they would be making an announcement in the 2018, or sorry, my apologies, 2017 Dubai Air Show in November. So I said, okay, I'm going to wait for that. I was excited. I was going to wait for the November 2017 to come and, you know, find out what this big announcement is going to be. November 2017 Dubai Air Show came and went, and there was an announcement that the school was opening, but the date was to be determined. So I was a little bit bummed out about it because I I kind of wanted an answer to find out what was going to be the deal, you know, um, you know, was I going to be able to join this 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 program? How much was it going to cost? Was it going to cost me anything? I didn't know. I ended up finding out a few months down the line that um, the the cost of the program was going to be expensive, um, very expensive, but um, but at the same time, it was just something that. I had to really judge to say, okay, could I really afford this? Um, is is it is it worth it now? It may like not discouraging them at all. 
an amazing, amazing program they have. Um, you know, brand new, beautiful facilities. It was just something that I just couldn't afford at the time. So I had to make a tough decision. Um, and, you know, do I want to continue my life sitting behind a desk, wondering, you know, if I didn't accomplish this dream of mine, uh, would I regret it for the rest of my life? I'm making really good money at this job I have. I mean, in my dream company, I just can't do what I want to do, truly. And I had to make a decision. And I had to resign. I resigned from, from Emirates. And it was actually tougher than I thought because, mm -hmm. again, it was my it was dream company, dream job. I really had nothing to complain about. Um, but I had no choice because the economics to do it, do the program over there, the flying program over there, was just not feasible for me. And I had to do it back home. Um, but at the same time, I still wanted to keep my, my feet wet in the industry. So I moved back to Canada and I ended up getting a job with Air Canada um, at the same time. And I started my flight training basically in parallel when I was working uh, at the same time. Um, and I started Air Canada, um, again, still continuing in logistics. And again, into another large full-scale project. I had no idea until I actually started the, started in the company. Um, I was working in the Toronto stores warehouse uh, in Toronto Pearson Airport for Air Canada. Um, it was the busiest um, warehouse facility for Air Canada. And they were also going through a transition. Um, the Greater Toronto Airport's Authority um, wanted to expand Terminal 3. And um, one of the hangars was in the way of that construction. Now, the GTA owns the land of the airport. So Air Canada is just a tenant of the airport. Um, and they wanted them to move uh, hangars. Um, and unfortunately, the facility for which I worked in was in that same hangar that they wanted to demolish. So they had to build a brand new hangar called Bay 5. Um, it, was the, it was literally a mega hangar um, uh, designed to basically house three, almost three wide body aircraft uh, under the same roof. So it's a huge, huge facility, 125,000 square feet, um, you know, massive facility, um, massive hangar. It's actually the, I believe it's the, the largest freestanding hangar, hangar in Canada. Hmm. So it's fairly big. Yeah. Um, and I was part of that project. So again, it was, you know, I was involved in these very, very high, high skill projects. Um, really, really cool, unique opportunities because, you know, when is this ever going to happen again, right? Very rare. Um, and I was involved in that, involved in the move, part of, uh, part of the prep for the demolition. Um, so many things. It was really, really cool to see. At the same time, I was doing flight training, I was, I was mentioning before too as well. Um, after work, I would uh, literally drive up to Brampton Airport and I would go and fly for two hours with my instructor. I'd go or go for a solo for two hours or go solo for four hours, depending on, you know, how long my day was. And I would constantly do that as I was working and building my time, building my time. And then COVID happened. And then Something COVID that happened. We, then, told, then COVID happened. Something that we will all never forget. And that was, that was an eye-opener for me um, because... You know, aviation is very cyclic. 
you know, generally they say every seven years, it's always an, always an up and down thing. Um, and uh, I saw it firsthand. I think, I think everybody saw it firsthand. Um, everybody lived and breathed COVID. And it was the worst for me because, um, you know, I was managing employees at the time. Um, and it was tough because you're, this is the first time in my life I was in a position where my job was not getting cut per se, because I was, I was blessed to be one of the lucky ones that didn't lose a job or didn't get furloughed or didn't get packaged out. But I saw from the other end where you had to send home hundreds of employees and that's not fun because you're now knowing that, um, that you know, they might not be able to pay for the mortgage. They might not be able to pay for the food on, you know, food for their, for their family, roof of their head. I mean, there's so many things that are going through your mind um, when you're having to give a letter to somebody and it's a generic letter saying, you know, basically they say, basically saying, unfortunately, you're laid off until further notice. Yeah. Um, and in doing that repeatedly, repeatedly to different people, it hurts, you know. Um, as much as you try and take the human aspect and human element out of it, at the end of the day, you're still dealing with people. I think we can all look back on that time and remember absolutely where we were and maybe our jobs were the ones being cut and maybe we're the ones having to make those decisions and have those hard conversations. But gosh, it, yeah, it was just such a tough time all around for everyone. I saw a lot of, you know, my friends that were in management and my friends that were just colleagues, just, you know, there were their jobs had been lost and, or they were just packaged out. So that was tough um, for me to deal with. And obviously I had to obviously stop my, pause my flight training, but I didn't allow it for, for me to stop it completely. I still continued to do exams. I still continued to get whatever I could get done um, without stopping the momentum because I knew at some point the world couldn't live with this forever. So I knew something that was going to, so I knew something was going to happen again, just a matter of time. We just didn't know when. Mm -hmm. During that time, um, during restructuring, I was promoted um, to the regional manager. And what the responsibility of the regional manager was to look after the entire base. Um, so now I was not only responsible for just over 120 employees once we got back to pre-COVID levels. I was now responsible for the management managers, the frontline managers as well. Um, so I did that for about a year and a half. And again, this is all during when um, I'm still doing my flight training. So now I'm going to a very, a very high stressful job, um, managing a lot of staff and still continuing to fly as much as I can. Um, to make sure I finish what I need to finish. Then I was further, further promoted to general manager, general manager of logistics um, for Air Canada, the system-wide. Um, so we're now talking Toronto, Montreal, Calgary, uh, Vancouver, London Heathrow, Frankfurt. So my little base, or I wouldn't say little base, but my base went from Toronto to everything mm -hmm. overnight. Um, so that was an interesting transition, but again, it's still, I still was continuing doing what I need to do to continue the flight training. Um, and then once I got all my credentials done in terms of my 
uh, my, my CPL multi-multi-IFR, um, I was able to take up an opportunity for which I'm in now flying full-time. Um, and it was a huge jump. Um, it was not an easy one financially, of course, uh, but it, it's not about the money. Um, it's about the love for which for what you're doing, and which was for me was always flying. And I and I had to take sacrifice. I had to to reason with myself to say, you know what, I'm doing this for the good of what I enjoy doing, and not saying that what I did before I didn't enjoy. It's fulfilling a dream, and that's the difference, right? Um, I love what I what I did before. Um, absolutely, I was been in logistics for 16 years. Uh, in, in aviation logistics at that too, right? So, you know, I always say to myself, well, if I had done something else or if I was just going to flying, would I appreciate it more or less? Um, because there was a lot of knowledge base around the, those jobs I did starting from all the way from working in the terminal to Air Georgia to Sky Regional to Emirates to Air Canada. All of those jobs was was a catalyst to where I am now today. Mm-hmm. I've learned so much um, just being able, just being around those environments and learned so much more than you could even ever imagine working with so many different departments, so many different assets, so many different, um, you know, financial responsibilities, people. It, 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 uh, it just, it's just endless. Literally, it's just endless um, to what it is today. Now, taking that all together, take my licenses my father's licenses and my ability to fly and flying an airplane so after all those years of chipping away grinding it out even if you were in roles that you enjoyed but maybe didn't fulfill you entirely because there wasn't that dream element for you you still had those goals and to finally find yourself reaching that goal now of course you're flying for voyager what are you flying and what do your days look like now so what i'm doing now i'm flying with voyager airways um, on the dash eight uh, 100 and 300. Um, I'm primarily doing uh, the contract for Pure Later, um, and uh, essentially they're they're just running cargo and freight for Pure Later out of Hamilton Airport. Um, and um, a lot of people, just in case if you know the viewers or the listeners don't know about Voyager Airways, Voyager Airways is a company. Um, it's based in North Bay, an amazing company. Uh, they are um, primarily an MRO. Um, so they specialize in um, aircraft maintenance and overhaul. Um, they, they've been working with the Dash 8 for years. They know the airplane very, very, very well. Um, they have a lot of STCs um, that allow them to modify the airplane for special missions. Um, so they're very, very, very talented in what they do. Um, an amazing group of people who work there. Um, Voyager was also known for their um, their presence in the United Nations. So they also uh, fly overseas um, in the Africa operations, um, primarily using the CRJs and Dash 8s uh, to support uh, the the United Nations contracts um, in different parts of the Middle East and Africa. Um, so that's what they're primarily known for. Um, but I work in the domestic side um, here in Canada. Um, and that's it for in terms of a nutshell, in terms of my career. <laughs> so now it's, I know it's a lot, uh, but it's been it's been so much fun. Yeah, and I'm I'm going to touch on a couple of different things. The first one being jumping way way back to your first role with a uh, with a, being a courier at Pearson. 
Mm-hmm. Um, as someone that has been a customer service rep and has dealt with sort of the actual passenger part of, hey, I'm sorry, you have a misconnected bag. It didn't arrive. Where is it? And having to fill out those baggage forms. I can only imagine that you guys just got to be like the victorious heroes who returned with the bags because I just yes. got to hear, I got to help identify that your bag had not arrived with you, but you got to actually do the better part, which is here you go, here's your bag. And you got to, to be the good guy when I got to be the bad guy. <laughs> unfortunately, yes. Unfortunately and unfortunately at the same time. Because, <laughs> and, and the thing is too, you know, you you do feel it. And, and, and one thing about it is, when you work in these other jobs in the industry, not just going through flight school and just becoming a pilot and flying an airplane, when you work the front lines with customers and passengers and cargo or whatever the, the end state goal is to get something or somebody from point A to point B, you really do appreciate it when you work those front lines because now you really get to see the inner workings of you know what goes really goes behind the scenes and you get a better appreciation of it as well. Um, so yeah, I, I totally agree with you and it, and it's, it sometimes it's great and sometimes it's not pretty. <laughs> no, I think my, my worst moment is when we had lost like a playpen for someone and they had two young kids and I just thought this is, this is not going well. And of course they didn't live anywhere near the airport. It was going to be a two and a half hour drive to wherever it was. And I just remember thinking, man, I'm, I'm not, I'm not, uh, I don't feel too, uh, too bad for the, the guys that are maybe the ones to deliver this because they get to be the victorious ones. but man it, it was uh you always felt bad and I, I don't think anyone ever feels good <laughs> filling out one of those forms and yeah it, it was it was a big part of it um the flight training that i initially had was very focused on like the pilot is it everyone else is sort of there but you the pilot are the one that makes it all happen and it was not until i started really working in other roles in aviation that i understood the pilots are one part of this massive group project for every successful flight and i truly believe that the person who delivers coffee to the uh, person who is in charge of making sure that the runways are plowed is just as important as anyone else in the airport. It's whoever is running the local Tim Hortons to an airport for any airport staff. You are a critical member of that team. Absolutely. And I, and I 100% agree with you. And the thing is too, it's, you see, I think a lot of people have that perception because who are the front lines? The front lines, when you're bored an airplane, are the people in uniform. And when I say uniform, no disrespect to anybody who's in customer service. They're generally the first people who, you know, takes the brunt of somebody's bad day. And then, but then when you see the flight attendants, when they see the pilots, you know, it's, you know, a little bit more of a level of respect to some degree. Um, unfortunately, some passengers still take it out on the flight attendants, unfortunately. Um, but at the end of the day, you know, a lot of people, don't even don't even have any idea on how complex the inner workings are behind the scenes you know and and it the the industry or the airline world day to day is so complex it takes one thing to throw everything off one yeah. thing you know and it, it can happen so fast it could be aircraft mechanical it could be crew it could be weather it could be you know geopolitical issues so many different things can throw the whole life cycle of the operation off and generally how it starts is you know if the day starts off bad the rest of the day is going to be even worse as you know yeah. uh, so it, it can it's very dynamic um and and that's what kind of makes it interesting too because you have to be so flexible 
you have to be kind of forward thinking and you have to be very dynamic in the sense that, okay, you know, you got to figure out the solution of how do you get people from point A to point B as quickly as possible and on time. Um, and, and it's everybody's responsible for that. Um, it's not just the pilots. It's not just flight attendants. It's not just a ramp crew. It is every single person in that piece of the pie to make that happen. Mm -hmm. It's everyone you see plus about a hundred people that you don't even know the roles that they have could exist. It's all these people that go into making every flight super, super successful. Um, if I'm looking at sort of your career and how it has gone just before we get into any of the actual flying, if we just look at the different roles you'd had in aviation up until then, there's this recurring theme of being a bit of a self-starter, but also always taking every opportunity for furthering your training or wh whatever the next step was. And I know that while you were also at uh, Air Georgian doing inventory control, you were doing Centennial College's parts technician apprenticeship program. How yes. did that come to be and what was that program like? So that's a very good question. Um, so that actually came prior to my aviation um, career. And it actually kind of ties into everything. Um, my father, my late father, he's passed now. Um, he worked for the Toronto Transit Commission. My mother worked for the Toronto Transit Commission. So transportation in my life, per se, has always been in my blood from the time I was born, literally. Mm. Um, and how I got with that uh, college diploma and cert certification was actually um, prior to me working at the airport, funny enough, I had actually, my mom said, hey, one day she's like, you know, why don't you try and you know, work a summer student job at the TTC and see how you like it. And I applied and I got into funny enough inventory control throughout the summer. <laughs> so it kind of started off very, very young, very early. Um, and the cool thing about working there was um, when you work there, you actually gain hours towards an apprenticeship. And the apprenticeship, what would what they did is actually put me in actually in in, in Centennial College program because it was a prerequisite to work there full time if I ever wanted to do so. Hmm. Um, so it was interesting and I took advantage of it. I said, absolutely. Um, but when I found the opportunity to work in aviation doing the same thing, I was able to apply what I learned from that college diploma into Air Georgia and beyond. So it actually really came into really, really good use. Um, and I did the apprenticeship. We actually have a license out of an apprenticeship. It's called Parts Technician apprenticeship program it's something called a red seal trade program um just like a plumber just like an hvac technician there's actually something for parts as well it's not something that's very known it's very niche very specific um but uh it was it was amazing so that's actually kind of how i bridged into the logistics world um just by fluke um, meeting that same person at that store that happened to work in logistics as well um and now taking the fundamentals of working in warehousing, logistics, parts, handling, and combining that with aviation knowledge. And that's how it all started. So there's this recurring theme of, I mean, just sort of finding yourself in the right place at the right time with mm -hmm. a unique skill set that you can transfer. But again, this, this continued education, because uh, I know as well, you did the International Career School, Canada's Airframe Mechanics and Aircraft Maintenance Technician Program. Yes. And to me, if I if I just sort of look at your resume or just looked at your LinkedIn, it sort of seems like you would almost sort of 
have had this um, desire to go into more of like aircraft maintenance. I, that's sort of what I what I get. But really, it was always pilot. Yeah, it was always pilot. But I'm more I'm I'm the kind of person that likes to understand everything from the ground up. When I say that, no pun intended from the ground up from the book. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, but when I say from the ground up, I, I'm the kind of person that likes to understand every possible inner working of the industry. I enjoy it. Um, it's something I thrive off because, again, you know, when you're sitting in that pilot seat, it's not just you who the world revolves around. It is everything else behind mm -hmm. the scene that really makes it tick. Um, and I've always wanted to just further push myself to um, have knowledge into certain things. The reason why I actually joined and did the ICS program as well, um, while I did many years of doing logistics, is to have a little bit more of a mechanical understanding behind the scenes. Mm -hmm. When I say that, if a mechanic comes to me and asks me, hey, I need this PRSLV valve, pressure relief shutoff valve, well, I'm looking at it as a as a person working logistics i'm like what does a prslv valve do and well, why is it important to have one it, why is it important to have one what does it do on the airplane how does it affect the airplane serviceability what happens if it fails you know what what uh what do the pilots do if it fails how do the mechanics fix it how do they replace it how does the the oem meaning the aircraft sorry the original um uh, equipment manufacturer how do they fix it what do they do what is the general faults there's so many questions that can be asked just around that if you want to explore and be curious enough i was that person i was the person who was always asking questions in terms of you know why does it do this and always just curious so i kind of wanted to have that little little bit of background knowledge in terms of okay what does the mechanics have to deal with you know and that's why i did that course because again i want to make sure that in everything I do in this industry um, that I can relate to people as best as I can. I might not be able to do the job day to day, but if I can relate to somebody, it makes the working relationship that much easier. It makes my knowledge base that much greater. Mm -hmm. I know in my own working life, I had the opportunity of working in a sort of, yeah, warehousing scenario, but I was dealing specifically with IT equipment and parts. And everyone mm -hmm. who I worked with had a background in computer science, was a computer tech, could do all these things. And I was the one non-IT person on the yeah. IT team. And I was in charge of our, our parts. So we would get a request for a keyboard or a hard drive for printers, specifically printers. They were the bane of my existence for a very long time. But mm -hmm. just by being in that environment, you do pick up certain things. You do begin to understand and have those questions. I. I know more about printers than anyone could ever possibly want to know, but it became part of part of the gig. If I wanted to do well in that environment, I needed to have a frame of reference beyond just being tasked by my uh, supervisor or by my peers. So I can entirely appreciate wanting to take it that one step further to really try and understand. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think it's important, too, because um, it'll give you a better appreciation in terms of what everybody else does. And again, not to say that you have to go in and do their job, but if you can at least maybe live a day in the life and see what somebody else does that has a joint connection to what you do, your relationship with that person uh, just by default will automatically be better just because of the fact that you understand their pain points, their pressures, um, 
and 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 it what it actually does is not only increase your knowledge base, but it'll actually make just kind of a working relationship better um, just between two individual people, just because of the fact that you can kind of relate to somebody um, if you're in their shoes or if you understand a little bit more of what they do to make your job tick. So one question I have for other people that have worked sort of in a warehousing cataloging environment, um, is your home as meticulously organized as it can be? <laughs> I tried. Is everything all labeled? <laughs> No, I would say everything's labeled, but I, I, I try and keep it as organized as I possibly can, yes. <laughs> yeah, no, it's it's never someone who, I mean, granted, you can't go into a warehouse where it feels like there's no one who's ever thought about organization that has, has been uh, at the helm of that project. But yeah, a, a, an organized warehouse or inventory is the easiest way. I mean, it's just, uh, I mean, it makes sense fiscally to be organized because yes. that's how you see when you need to replace things. So no, I, I always like to ask people like were you were you particularly organized in your own personal life as well <laughs> yes so you've also had the opportunity to take on many different leadership roles throughout your uh sort of non-flying aviation career there's always been something that you are in charge of you're overseeing people and these are different companies different scales different operations altogether. but you still have had to find yourself at the helm or part of the executive team um, when it comes to leading the operation how has your leadership style changed over the years, depending on the type of operation you were working in? That's a good question. Um, I leave it down to one factor, the people. Um, a learning and understanding people is going to be the lifeline to what you want to achieve. As long as there are people reporting to you and people are looking up to you for leadership and guidance, um, that I that is one thing that I've learned over the years that is the utmost important. Other than, than the company's objectives um, and safety, the people are are the utmost important because without them, you're basically nothing. In 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 a lot of cases, unless you have a computer working for you or something that's automated, if it's people who need to be behind the scenes to 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 get something accomplished, you need to be their biggest supporter. Um, that's something that I've learned. You know, I've I've always said um, there's four P's and, and and it's more of an acronym. It's uh, priorities, priorities, policies, people, and patience. Mm. Priorities mean what is the company's objective? What do they want? What what is it? What is their endeavors? What is their projects? Where is what is something that they want to accomplish? You got to take that understanding, make it into procedures. Because the procedures is something that you have to bridge with the people. But without people, you can't build procedures because you need to understand what the people do in order to make the procedure. So they all tie in together. Mm -hmm. And the, the final thing is patience. You know, in my previous job at Air Canada, you know, um, it's an, Air Canada's been around over 85 years. Um, and there's a lot of things that were done as such. And that's always passed down from generation to generation to generation from people to people. It's always been a norm. But when you have to affect change, um, that's where you require patience. Because now you need to start tapping into, well, they've always done it this way. It doesn't necessarily mean it's the right or wrong way, but there could be a better way to do it mm -hmm. or a more efficient way to do it. And that's when you need to start tapping into people. 
um, and really getting to understand how they think, the way they think, what they're doing, how they're doing, and getting their input. I think that's really important because, you know, a lot of people have different management styles. Um, some people do, you know, management style by brunt force. Some people do it are a little bit more softer. Some people are meatier. Some people are very, very hard. Um, so it really depends. But generally, when you don't include people in the process, meaning your frontline employees, it's it's you're basically set up for failure. Um, that's that's how I look at it, and it's and it's never failed me, not involving people. Um, I think also too when you are showing that you're a people person, um, but not being too lenient. It's more of a fair but firm type stance um, that you are there for them, but at the same time too, y'all also you also have to make sure that you're drawing the line that this is this is business at the end of the day. So it's more of a happy medium uh, standpoint. Um, but let me tell you, managing, you know. 300 staff, over 300 staff at the time when I when I left my previous role, that was the key. Having an open door policy, um, you know, being available for them. Because at the end of the day, you got to remember they're human beings too. People are human beings, period. I'm a human being, you're a human being, they are human beings. And you're spending more time with them at work than they are with their own family. When you think about it, right? You're spending, you know, 11, almost 12 hours a day with with, with people and you have to have some sort of synergy and working relationship. Um, and if you're in support of them and you have their back and you have that communication with them, believe me, they will run through a brick wall for you. Believe me, uh, even if they hate their job, if it's you asking them to do something and you're been their best supporter, they will run through a brick wall for you. They won't even hesitate. And I've learned that that's really a key to being successful in terms of leadership with with people, with frontline people, that you need to have a, a good working relationship and you need to be supportive. You need to have open communication dialogue and be honest um, with them. And and I think that's been that's really served me well over the years. And that's something I've learned. Um, and you also have to have a little bit of a thick skin to do so, too. Right. Because it's not always easy. It's, you know, people will always find things to complain about. People will not, will, will almost never be happy about, every, about everything. But if you can at least show that you're trying and you're trying to make an effort, you're trying to make a change and you're communicating with them, that's half the battle right there. You know, making people feel valued, making them feel welcomed um, and that they're having a safe workspace to be in. Um, I think it's very important. And once you kind of tick all those boxes, everything will generally flow for the most part um, to the way you would want it to be. So that's generally my tactic. Now, having a background in inventory, materials, purchasing, mm -hmm. God, um, material control, stock, being a general <laughs> manager, logistics and warehousing, and all these other different parts. When you go to your role now and you're a first officer and you're showing up, how do you think all of that ties into how you present yourself at work now. Oh my goodness, it it so much better um, because it's not it's not the fact that I went to flight school, learned only how to fly the airplane, and that was it. I I can sit in the flight deck confidently, 
and understand that if something breaks on the airplane, it's not it's not the mechanic's fault. You know, he didn't do it on purpose. The airplane's just broke. Something went wrong, or the components failed, or 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 something. Right? It it, it it's just it's just now I understand the procedure. Well, we gotta you know uh, see if it's an MVLable item. If it's an MVLable item, great. Then we can still fly based on the restrictions of the MAL. If it's not an MBL item, okay, we got to call maintenance. We got to call maintenance anyways, even when we're MELing something anyways. Um, but understanding that behind the scenes in terms, okay, well, if they have to change the part, now I understand where that part's coming from, um, how it was inventory, how it was given to the mechanic, how the mechanic's got to install it, how the mechanic's got to test it, how the mechanic has got to sign off for release to service with his license number and his stamp his ACA stamp. So all of these things come into play. How the part was even purchased, how the part was even repaired. Mm -hmm. You know, there's so many different deep dynamics. How the part was even paid for. How the part was even negotiated through its contract. I mean, I could keep going down this rabbit hole, yeah. <laughs> right? Um, you know, and there's so many different things. And not just that, you know, when you're, when you're, when you go to call for de-ice, you know, how does those guys, how do they play into the world of, of, of regular operations when you go to call your dispatch? How do they do their job? You know, so overall, and not just with parts, just overall, just being in the industry for, for a while and being able to interact with different departments um, has allowed me to really, really appreciate sitting in the, the, the flight deck a lot more. And to not be so hasty about certain things, you know, for people who haven't seen things behind the scenes, they might be hasty or angry that things aren't going their way or as fast as they would want it to be. But once you have that understanding of things behind the scenes in terms of, well, yeah, this might take a bit of time or yeah, maybe he's working on it or maybe they got to go through, jump through all these hoops to get this thing done. You're not going to be as stressed out because you kind of have a little bit of a better understanding um, behind the scenes in terms of how different pieces of pie come together to release you to go fly the airplane. I always think that uh, some of the best people I know in aviation are the ones that have that, um, that pollinator uh, perspective as opposed to us all being sort of siloed in our own little spheres. that you have that, uh, like a bee, you've gone around to all the different things. You've taken a little bit of it with you. You've left something there and it influences the way you approach things now. Um, it may be hard for our listeners to believe that you've ever had a moment of free time to yourself based on your career <laughs> history and also the flight training, but not only have you been a volunteer with the Urban Pilots Network since 2007, you've been a board member since 2019, you were a recipient of the Dreams Never Die Foundation Scholarship in 2017 and 2018, and you've also received an award for outstanding commitment on youth development and for outstanding leadership within the Urban Pilots Network. Um, as well, and of course, the way that I always jokingly know you, you were a Wings Magazine recognized top 20 under 40 in 2021, and were the cover model. So what does it mean to you to be recognized this way and to be actively involved in your community? Honestly, I, I'm a firm believer that I work day in and day out as hard as I can to serve the purpose of the industry not for risk not for recognition at all i don't do it for the recognition that just came naturally you know um 
And I think it's important to never forget the reason for which why you do it and making sure that it's not just for yourself, but you're paying it for to people that are to come after you, you know, because it's never easy going through this industry. Um, there's a lot of reasons not to fly. I'll be very straight up and honest. There's so many reasons I could list a whole page of why not to do it. And, and it's finding it within you to say, do you love it or do you not? And if you love it, nothing else matters. And it's the point where I'm trying to get to it is making sure that you're setting an example for the people after you to make it as easy as possible. Because like I said, it's not easy. So what are things that you can do to reduce the roadblocks or barriers for the people after you? Um, so that's where all my hard work and, and efforts go into is to make things streamlined, make things easier, not only in the workplace, but for the people who want to make um, aviation as a career, something that they'd want to do and enjoy and take away those roadblocks, take away those road, those barriers, take away, reduce those reasons of why not to become a pilot or reduce those reasons of why not to get into this industry. Um, that's what I want to do is to make sure that the, anybody who's behind me can, if even if it's a little bit of help, it's that will get them so much further than how for which I had it. Um, and that's where the European Pilots Network comes in. You know, they um, they believe in um, setting a foundation for, you know, people of color and, you know, minorities to make sure that they know and understand that if I can do it, you definitely can do it. Going into community communities to make sure that um, there's representation because again, you know, uh, there's, there's not many of people like me um, in this industry and it's to show other people that it can be done. And it's to show other people that, um, that if you had thought that you couldn't do it, well, here's an example, right? Um, you know, I'll tell you a quick story um, about me personally. Um, when I was actually in high school, um, I was horrible at math. I sucked at it, <laughs> right? And, and, you know, but, you know, obviously you still have to do it. You still have to try. And I will never forget this. There was a teacher um, in my remedial class <clears throat> for math. And I had signed up for co-op um, to do co-op in high school um, so I can get some, you know, real world experience in terms of what I wanted to do. And there was a sign up sheet that they passed around the class because I was one of the people who signed up and I was in a, I was sitting in the remedial class and the guidance counselor came to my class to give me the sheet. And it specifies, you know, information in terms of what you want to do, brief description of what you want to do. And I said, I want to work something in aviation. I didn't know at the time I wanted to be a pilot, but I knew I wanted to work in aviation for sure. There was no doubt. And I will never forget this. The teacher um, in the class had picked up the form to give back to guidance counselor later on. And she picked it up and she read my form and she said to me, she goes, so you want to be in aviation? I said, yeah. She goes, meaning like airplanes? I said, yes. She goes, well, I got newsflash for you. You don't have an IQ high enough to, to be in that industry. I suggest you do something else. Maybe you should be a rapper or go into music or something else. 
And, you know, <laughs> when somebody says something like that to you at, a, at the age I was, it, you don't know, even know how to respond to that. Um, it's an insult and also racial remark at the same time. But again, you're so young, you don't know how to process it. And then it starts to dig deep into you. You start to get sad about it because it's like, man, am I really that dumb? Do I, do I, am I really never going to be able to touch an airplane or be in this industry that I wanted to be in for, for so long? Um, and you have two options. Um, as you get older, you start to learn how to be resilient. You have two options. You can fight or flight. Um, you could fight and use that as motivation to prove what is being said to you is wrong. Or you could flight and you could say, you know what, I'm not doing this because this person brought me down. And clearly I've shown that I fought all the way and proved them, proved this individual, this teacher, time and time and time again that, you know, her statement that has resonated in my brain for the rest of my life has has been nothing but a motivation for me to prove this individual wrong that I can do great and amazing things and and put a lot of effort into what I love doing and achieve it and much more. Um, so back to the UPN and Urban Palace Network, um, it's it's making sure that also those types of barriers are not built, making sure that there's nobody standing in your way to um, demotivate you from what you want to do. Um, and that's why we go out to the communities and, and put out our representation, speak to the kids directly, put them in flight simulators, show them operation centers, show them um, the airplanes, take them up flying, you know, to make sure that it is ingrained in their brain that this is something that is very achievable and that if they want to achieve it, whether it might be a pilot, mechanic, uh, air traffic controller, dispatcher, whatever you want to do, that it can be done. Um, and this is the way to do it. And at least they can use Urban Pilots Network as a conduit to, if they so choose to do so, that they can do it through through that uh, through that chain and through that avenue. So that's basically my driving force in terms of why I do this. Um, and again, I don't do this for recognition. I do it for the purpose of making sure that the industry is streamlined as possible. It's already it's already a complex industry as it is. So why make it more complex? Why make it more difficult? And also to make it less difficult for the people behind me and make it easier for them to achieve their dreams. I know I've had discussions with Tanya Yearwood, who is the founder of the Black Aviation Professionals Network, and Warren Holt, who is the current president of UPN. And there's this recurring topic that comes up every time which is that uh, both of them are black and for them growing up they were told that they could be sort of in sports in entertainment but a lot of careers that's just not for you Correct. whereas I as a young white girl was told I could be whatever I wanted and no one said and, and maybe I would get every now and then I'm like that's not for a girl but it was never I would say maybe as ingrained or as diminishing as it was to be told, well, you can't do aviation. Here's other things you can do instead. And it, I, I, I never imagined that either one of them was telling me a one-off story. I, I knew that it was clearly more prolific than that, but it is nevertheless still so discouraging to hear that it's just such a common thing for basically youth that aren't white. Yeah, 
Yeah, exactly. And, and, and that's <clears throat> underlying, that's another underlying reason in terms of why we go into community into communities, because we don't know what's being told to these kids. Yeah. You know, these kids at their age, their brain is a sponge. So if they're being told at a young age that they can't do something, more times, more than likely, they're going to believe it and follow through with it and just be discouraged and go into something else or go into something that they don't want to do because that one person told them, well, you can't do it. You're too dumb enough to do this. And and that is so wrong, you know, um, in, in so many levels. And that's why we go in there and and really try and go the extra mile to show them that, say, hey, that is definitely not true. And, you know, here's an, here's an example. And here's what it would be like, right? Um, so, so yeah, you're, you're exactly right. Uh, it, and, it, and I believe it still happens to this day, um, whether it be major um, or might be subtle. You know, it still has an effect on people. And, you know, and the, the whole goal is to, to basically stop it or prevent it or, redu or reduce it. You know, if you can change one person's life, that's a win. That's a win in my eyes. You know, um, if you can tap into their brain and, and really um, make them believe that this is achievable, that's a win, you know, for me. So that's that's the reason why we do it. Normally at this point in the episode, I ask our guests if they can share a memory or a highlight of some time in their career. You have had a career of highlights, so I'm going to make <laughs> it a little bit easier for you. Tell me about your first solo. Oh, man. <laughs> <laughs> Wow. Uh, my first solo, it was at Buttonville Airport um, when Toronto Airways was still like, operating at Buttonville Airport. And um, wow. I remember my, my mother was there. She had watched me taxi out and, and uh, I took off on, I think it was runway 33. And uh, yeah, it was, it was the coolest experience, you know, the, the biggest thing I remember from my solo is the airplane was so much lighter because <laughs> my instructor wasn't there beside me. And uh, I was like, whoa, reach 55, not so fast, you know, and, you know, the airplane just gets up off the ground so quickly, you know, and that was really cool for me um, to, to, to do your first solo. And then, you know, you're actually, you know, you take off and you go through the circuit pattern and, and you know, you're, it was, I believe it was a right-hand circuit, if I remember, and you're watching the, runway from the right side of you and you're making sure you're parallel to it and you're all squared up and you know you got your flaps down and you got your carpet out so it was it was an experience that you know uh, you, you never forget um for sure and then you know you taxi back in and you know your instructor is there and my mom is there and you know she's happy and so that that was that was a cool experience for sure um yeah uh, it's uh, i think every pilot is has got their their stories but yeah, that one's that, that one stands out for me. It was uh, an advice from another guest that we had, uh, Sierra Harib. She had been uh, doing a panel uh, that, of course, happened to have uh, Buzz Aldrin as one of the people on this panel that she was hosting. And of course, everyone else was there asking about, you know, what was it like to be part of uh, Apollo 11 and all the different things with that. And then she said, so tell me about your first solo. And apparently he just lit up to just get to talk about, you know, the, something that is, is, is so special to anyone who flies. 
Um, and yeah, so this is my go-to question now that I stole from her of tell me about your first solo because you can just hear the smiles that people have when they get to talk about them. Yeah, and, and it's and it's a huge moment, you know, you 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 work so hard and it's something that when you think about it, it's not something that everybody can do. You know, flying an airplane is not something everybody can do. So when you're you know, when you're put in that environment to do it by yourself and you take off and land. You know, it's not something that just to be underestimated. It's a big deal, especially doing it for the first time. So, yeah, absolutely. It's it's a great question. Now, before we wrap up today, where can our listeners find you on social media? My uh, my Instagram ha- handle is localizer. It's again, no pun intended, but my my last name is Locid. So localizer one. Um, that's that's my Instagram. And I'm also found on LinkedIn. Uh, Carl Loken, uh, Carl with a K. We will be sure to have those links in the episode description for our listeners. Carl Loken, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you so much, Laura. It's been a pleasure speaking with you. The Holding Short Podcast is a production of Holding Short Media. The show is written and hosted by me, Laura Matheson, and edited and produced by Cameron Bokoff. Our music is an original composition of Riley Searle. If you would like to learn more about the show, the Holding Short podcast is on Instagram and Facebook at Holding Short Media. Please subscribe, rate, and review us.